This Global IQ Minute is with Bruce Hamilton. Bruce has been working in the nuclear energy for 33 years. As a captain in the U.S. Navy, he served as the officer in charge of the nuclear reactors for the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz. More recently, in the commercial nuclear power industry, he has worked in management of plant operations and engineering, as well as in the procurement of nuclear fuel. Mr. Hamilton is a registered professional engineer in the state of Texas. He has been a director on the board of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth since 2006. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Jim. It's good to be here. The events that have unfolded at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant over the past week since Japan's horrific earthquake and tsunami have been fluid and dynamic. If you don't work in the nuclear industry, making sense of all this has to be a real challenge, even for people as informed and educated as the members of our council. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to help people understand what's happened. Most of our listeners understand that the tsunami cut off the electric power to the Fukushima Daiichi plant including the standby generators. What happens when you have a complete loss of electrical power at a nuclear plant like this? Well, Jim, there are six reactors at Fukushima Daiichi, and on March 11th, units 1, 2, and 3 were operating, and units 4, 5, and 6 were shut down for extended maintenance. All three of the operating reactors were shut down essentially instantly and automatically when the first earthquake hit. Even when shut down, though, the reactor core will continue to generate heat from the decay of the remnants of the nuclear fission that had occurred during operation. We call this fission product decay or decay heat, and it takes some time measured in days, weeks, and months for it to subside. Without electricity, the plant operators can't move water through the reactor core, so the water in the reactor vessel begins to boil and turns into steam, increasing pressure inside the reactor vessel. In order to keep the reactor vessel pressure below design limits, this steam is then piped into what's called a suppression pool of water, or a torus. It's a large donut-shaped tank that sits below the reactor vessel. Eventually, the water in the suppression pool can't absorb any more heat, and it too begins to boil, increasing pressure in the containment. In order to stay within design limits for the primary containment, the operators will reduce pressure by venting the steam through filters to scrub out any radioactive particulates, and that just goes into the atmosphere through a vent stack. If the operators can't pump additional water into the reactor vessel, the water level will begin to drop, and eventually the fuel rods will uncover. If the fuel remains uncovered for an extensive period of time, fuel damage, including melting of fuel, may occur. If there is fuel damage and steam is being vented to relieve pressure build up on the plant system, some radioactive material may escape to the environment. Well, was there any fuel damage? Like I said, Fukushima Daiichi units 1, 2, and 3, which were operating at the time of the earthquake, have experienced some fuel damage since the fuel rods or portions of the fuel rods were uncovered for some period of time. We don't have any evidence, however, that the cores have been damaged to the levels of the so-called meltdown, which is what we saw at Three Mile Island. The information I have suggests that the basic core configuration so far remains essentially intact. What would happen to the used fuel in the storage pools if if this cooling were lost? We don't yet know, Jim, the precise condition of the used fuel storage pools at Fukushima Daiichi. The used fuel there is is stored in seven pools, one at each of six reactors plus a shared pool and then a dry container storage facility for the oldest used fuel. The used fuel pools are located at the tops of the reactor buildings for ease of handling during refueling operations. There aren't any safety concerns regarding the used fuel in the dry storage casks at Fukushima Daiichi. Used fuel pools are robust concrete and steel structures. Pools are designed with systems to maintain 
maintain the temperature and water level sufficient to provide cooling and radiation shielding. The water level in a used fuel pool typically is about 16 feet above the top of the fuel assemblies. The used fuel pools are designed so that the water in the pool can't drain down as a result of damage to the piping or cooling system. The only rapid way to drain down the pool is if there's a structural damage to the walls or to the floor. If the cooling systems are unable to function, as was the case during the blackout, the decay heat generated by the used fuel results in a slow increase in the temperature of the used fuel pool water. The operating temperature of the pools is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit normally. This slow increase in temperature results in an increased evaporation rate. Exact evaporation rates depend on the amount of fuel in the pool and how long it's been there. In the absence of a cooling system, the water level would decrease by a few percent per day. Eventually, if evaporation continues without cooling or without the addition of makeup water, the used fuel will become exposed, increasing radiation levels. The pictures you've seen of water being sprayed at Fukushima Daiichi are their activities to replace the used fuel pool water inventory. And it seems like we're hearing a lot of conflicting reports. Bruce, how serious are the releases of radiation from Fukushima Daiichi, and, and do they represent a threat to human health? Well, Jim, we know that the releases of radioactive materials have occurred at the site. The implications of these releases on the health and safety of the Japanese public are not yet fully understood. But all of the radiation measurements outside the site that I've seen to date have been far below levels that would have health effects. The Japanese government implemented emergency planning procedures and evacuated residents within a 12 and a half mile radius of the plant before radiation releases were detected. Authorities have also distributed potassium iodide tablets specifically to guard against exposure to the thyroid gland from radioactive iodine that may be present. And they're monitoring the evacuees for potential contamination. The thyroid gland absorbs iodine regardless of whether it's radioactive or non-radioactive. Taking non-radioactive potassium iodide within several hours of a likely exposure to radioactive iodine can protect the thyroid gland by blocking further uptake of the radioactive forms of iodine. Potassium iodide doesn't protect any other part of the body and it doesn't protect against other radioactive elements. Well the question on everybody's mind is can an accident like this happen in the United States? It's difficult to answer this question until we have a better understanding of the precise problems and conditions that face the operators at Fukushima Daiichi, Jim. We do know, however, that the Fukushima Daiichi units lost all off-site power as well as their emergency diesel generators. This situation is called a station blackout. U.S. nuclear power plants are designed to cope with a station blackout even involving a loss of off-site power and on-site power and the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission's detailed regulations address this scenario. U.S. plants are required to conduct a coping assessment and develop a strategy to demonstrate the, to the NRC that they could maintain the plant in a safe shutdown condition during a station blackout scenario. In addition, U.S. nuclear plant designs and operating practices since the terrorist events of 9-11 have been reinforced to mitigate severe accident scenarios such as aircraft impact, which include the complete loss of off-site power and on-site power, and losses of large areas of the plant. U.S. nuclear plants are equipped to deal with these extreme events, we call them beyond design basis events, and nuclear plant operation staff are trained to manage them. So in short, you believe that our regulatory practices are sufficient? Yes, I do, Jim. Federal law requires that energy companies develop and perform graded exercises of sophisticated emergency response plans to protect the public in the event of an accident at a nuclear power plant. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission reviews and approves these plans. In addition, the NRC coordinates the approval of these plans with the Federal 
Emergency Management Agency, which has the lead federal role in emergency planning beyond the nuclear plant site. An approved emergency plan is required for the plant to maintain its federal operating license. A nuclear plant's emergency response plan must provide protective measures such as sheltering and evacuation of communities within a 10-mile radius of the plant. Again, after 9-11, Jim, the NRC issued new requirements and guidance that focus in part on emergency preparedness at plant sites in response to security threats. The industry has implemented these measures which address such issues as on-site sheltering and evacuation, public communications, and emergency staffing in the specific context of a security breach. So this is all really positive, but there's been in the last few years a, a, a great deal of emphasis on building more nuclear plants in the United States. Is this going to be slow down now? Well, Jim, new nuclear plant construction in the United States is in the early stages and proceeding in a very deliberate fashion. There's ample time to incorporate the lessons learned from these events during the construction period. Nuclear energy is, has been and will continue to be a key element in meeting America's energy needs. The nuclear industry sets the highest standards for safety and through our focus on continuous learning, we'll incorporate lessons learned from the events in Japan into the ongoing process of designing, licensing, and building our new nuclear plant. Jim, two companies have started site preparation and construction-related activities for new nuclear plants in Georgia and South Carolina with the expectation that these will receive their so-called combined construction operating licenses from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission late this year or early next year. We expect those reactor projects to proceed. Both projects use a light water reactor design with advanced safety features. That is, the reactors rely on natural forces like gravity rather than engineered safety features like pumps to deliver water to cool the reactor core. In addition, a number of companies are moving forward with the design, licensing, and at the appropriate time, construction of small modular reactors which also incorporate design features that provide additional safety marks. Although America's 104 nuclear power plants are safe and meet all the requirements necessary to protect the public health and safety, these new designs will be even safer. Thank you very much, Bruce. You've certainly helped us understand a very complicated situation. You've been listening to Global IQ Minute. Our guest today has been Bruce Hamilton. I'm Jim Falk. Global IQ Minute is a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thank you for listening.